11, and to the village, he was the hero in the festival which followed, and thereafter was held in high esteem, and so another motive was furnished. There is an indication in the Sulaco ceremony that heads may have been taken to cure headache and similar ill cf. Page 319, while the presence of the head basket, of the same name, in the fields suggests a possible connection between head hunting and the rice culture, such as still exists among the neighboring Kalinga. The Tingian do not now, and apparently never have practiced human sacrifice, but this custom and head hunting seem to be closely related and to have as a primary cause the desire to furnish slaves or companions for the dead. This idea was found among the ancient Tagalog, Visayan, and Zambal, and still exists among the Apayao of northern Luzon, the Bagogo, Mandaya, Bilan, and Tagakawa of Mindanao, as well as in Borneo and the islands to the south. That it once had a strong hold on the Ilocano of the coast is made evident by the mysterious cult known as Aksedrong, which at times terrifies whole communities. In 1907 the region about Bongi, in Ilocos Norte, was greatly excited over several attempts to kill people of that settlement, and it was whispered that when a leading man, who had recently died, was placed in his coffin, his right hand had suddenly raised up with four fingers extended. This, it was said, was a demand on the part of the dead for four companions, and the subsequent attacks on the villagers were thought to be due to the activities of the bereaved family in complying with the wishes of the deceased. The raids following a death were usually carried out as a village affair, and many warriors participated, but it seems that by far the greater number of heads were secured by individuals or couples, who would lie in ambush near to the trails, or to the places, where the women had to pass in carrying water from the streams to the village, while the Tengian Hall was chose to attack from ambush. Yet he did not hesitate to fight in the open when occasion demanded it. For a distance of 15 or 20 feet he depended on his spear, but for close quarters he relied on his shield and head axe. An examination of plate XLIV will show that the shield has three prongs at the top. These the warrior seeks to slip between the legs of his enemy to trip him up. Then one stroke downward with the axe, and the opponent is put out of the fight. The two lower prongs are meant to be slipped about the neck. One more stroke of the head axe, and the victor takes his trophy and starts for home, while the relatives of the dead man seek to secure the remains to carry them back to their village, as the loss of the head reflects on the whole party, and in a like manner its acquisition adds distinction to the victors. A hot fight usually develops over a man who is stricken down, and only ceases when the enemy is beaten off, or has been successful in getting away with the trophy. If a war party finds it necessary to make a night camp, or if they are hard-pressed by the foe, they plant long, thin strips of bamboo or palma brava in the grass. The ends of these are cut to sharp points, and they are so cleverly concealed that pursuers must use great care, and consequently lose much time, or they will have their legs and feet pierced with these needle-like blades. Upon their return to the village, the warriors were formerly met at the gate by their relatives, who held two ladders in a shape, thus forming a pathway over which each had to climb. Once inside the town, the heads were placed on a bamboo spike known as Sugang Siaf, page 310, or in the Sulaco Siaf, page 310, and for three days were exhibited beside the gate. In the meantime messages were sent to friendly villages to invite the people to the celebration. On the morning of the last day, the heads were carried up to the center of the village, where, amid great rejoicing, the men sang the praises of the victors or examined the skulls of the victims. Sometime during the morning, 
the men who had taken the heads split them open with their axes and removed the brains. To these they added the lobes of the ears and joints of the little fingers, and they placed the whole in the liquor which was afterwards served to the dancers. There seems to be no idea here of eating the brains of the slain as food. They are consumed solely to secure a part of their valor. An idea widespread among the tribes of Mindanao. The writer does not believe that any people of the Philippines indulges in cannibalism. If that term is used to signify the eating of human flesh as food, several, like the Tengen, have or still do eat a portion of the brain, the heart or liver of brave warriors, but always, it appears, with the idea of gaining the valor, or other desirable qualities of the victims, the balance of the head festival consisted in the drinking of sugar cane rum, of songs of praise by the headman, and finally all joined in dancing D.A.N., just before the guests were ready to depart. The skulls were broken into small bits, and the fragments were distributed to the guests so that they might take them to their homes, and thus be reminded of the valor of the takers. This disposition of the skull agrees with that of many Apoyao towns, but it does not conform with the description of ancient times afforded us in the tales, nor with the practices of the Kalinga and Igral people, both of whom preserve the trophy. The weapons of the warriors consists of a spear, head axe, and shield and the small bamboo spikes known as soga, they do not make use of the bow and arrow, although they have been credited as possessing them, the old men claim it has not been used in their lifetime, nor is mention made of it in the folk tales, the only time it appears is in the crude weapons used in shooting fish in the rice fields, and in the miniature bow and arrow, which hang above the heads of a newborn child, bolos, or long knives, are carried at the side suspended from the belt, and upon occasion may be used as weapons, However, they are generally considered as tools figure 7, the head axe, Aliwa or C figure 8. The axes made by the Tingian and Kalinga are identical, probably due to the fact that the center of distribution, as well as the best iron work of this region, is found in Palbalasan a town of mixed Tingian and Kalinga blood. The blade is long and slender with a crescent-shaped cutting edge on one end, and a long projecting spine on the other. This projection is strictly utilitarian. It is driven into the ground so as to support the blade upright. When it is desired to have both hands free to draw meat or other articles over the cutting edge, it is also driven into the soil, and acts as a support when its owner is climbing steep or slippery banks. The blade fits into a long steel ferrule which, in turn, slips onto a wooden handle. The latter may be straight or plain, but commonly it has a short projection midway of its length, which serves as a finger hold and as a hook for attachment to the belt. Quite frequently the handle is decorated with thin circles or bands of brass, while ornamental designs sometimes appear on the blade. While the axe is primarily a weapon, its use is by no means confined to warfare. It is used in house and fence building, in cutting up game and forest products, and in many other ways. Figure 8 shows three types of head axes. The first two, the Tengian Kalinga axe, third, the Idro, fourth, the Apoyao. There is a noticeable difference between the slender blades of the first group and the short, thick blade of the Idro, yet they are of the same general type, the Apollo weapon, on the other hand, presents a radical difference in form, despite these variations, the axes of these three tribes present an interesting problem, so far as it known, these are the only tribes in the Philippines which make use of a head axe, and it is believed that no similar weapon is found in the Malayan Islands, however, Blades of striking resemblance do occur among the Naga of Assam, 
it is possible that the weapons of these far separated regions may hark back to a common source, from which they receive their instruction in iron working. The spear, pika, the various types of spears used by the Tengian are shown in figure 9. A considerable part of these are made in the villages along the upper reaches of the Bukwak River and in Balbalasang, but many come into Agra through trade with the Igru and Kalinga. They are used for hunting and fighting, and are intended both as thrusting and throwing weapons. In the lowlands the older type of spearhead is a modified leaf shape, attached to a ferrule which slips over the shaft. In the mountains, heads with two or more barbs are set into the handles, and are held in place by means of wooden wedges and by metal rings which surround the ends of the shafts. A metal end or shoe covers the butt end of the weapon, thus converting it into an excellent staff for mountain climbing. Occasionally a hunting spear is fitted with a detachable head, which will pull out of the socket when an animal is struck. The shaft is attached to the point by means of a heavy line, and as this drags through the undergrowth, it becomes entangled and thus delays the flight of the game. Shields. Kalasag. Mention has already been made of the typical Tengian Kalinga shield CF. Page 373. While this is the common type of the region figure 10. NOS. 11A. Others, which approach those of the Bantakidro, are frequently used figure 10. Number 2. As a rule. These come from Balatok, Ludwigan, Ginnan and the villages along the Malakbot River, all of which are strongly influenced in blood and culture by the Idro. In the latter shields we find the prongs at the top and bottom, but they are no longer of sufficient size and opening to be of practical value. The clue to their origin is probably afforded us in their use by the Tengian. Across the top and bottom of each shield, near to the prongs, are two or three braided bands which appear to be ornamental or to strengthen the weapon, their real use, however, is to hold the soga, the pointed bamboo sticks which are planted in the grass to delay pursuers, a half dozen or more of these are usually to be found under the braiding at the back of the shield, all shields are of very light wood, and can easily be pierced by a spear, they are intended to be used in deflecting missiles rather than actually to stop them, to aid in this purpose, there is a hand grip cut into the center of the back, this is large enough to admit the first three fingers, while the thumb and little finger are left outside to tilt the shield to the proper angle. Hunting plates XLV XLVI. Hunting must be considered more in the nature of a sport than as a necessity. For, while a considerable amount of game is taken each year, it is not enough to furnish an important part of the food supply. As we have already noted, a great part of the country occupied by this tribe is devoid of forests. Dense growths do occur in some valleys and ravines, and a few of the mountains, like Pozoi, are heavily forested, but for the most part the western slopes of the Cordillera Central are covered with rank cocone grass. In the ravines and on the wooded slopes are deer, pig, wild carabao, and wild chickens, and during the dry season of the year it is no uncommon thing to see a considerable number of men leaving the village at daybreak with their dogs, spears, and nets. The customary method of hunting the larger animals is to stretch long nets across the runway of the game. A number of the hunters, armed with spears, conceal themselves nearby, while the balance of the party take the dogs to a distance and then, spreading out fan shape, will converge on the net, beating the brush and shouting in order to stir up the game. The dogs, sullen, half-starved brutes, take little interest in the chase until an animal is started, then they begin to bay and the whole pack is in pursuit. As the quarry rushes into the net, the concealed hunters fall upon it and spear it to death. 
at the same time fighting back the hungry dogs which would quickly devour it. Sometimes an animal escapes from the net, but if wounded, it is almost certain to fall a prey to the pack. Many deer are taken by this method in the course of a year. Sometimes a wild pig is netted, and on exceedingly rare occasions a carabao. However, the wild carabao is a dangerous animal, and hunters will not attack it unless it is so entangled in the nets that it is practically helpless. Still hunting for deer, near to the feeding grounds, yields a few animals each year, and during the period when the Lumbo Eugenia Jambolena lamb are in fruit, the hunters often hide themselves in the trees at night, and spear the pigs which come below them to feed. Wild hogs are also secured by placing a close fence about a field. One or two small entrances are left open and inside of these, deep pits are dug, and are covered with brush, as the animal pushes in its steps on the frail covering, and is hurled to the bottom of the pit, where it is easily dispatched with the spear. Among the smaller game, the wild chicken is the most important. These fowls seldom fly, but seek safety by running through the underbrush. The tengian takes advantage of this trait and stretches nets loosely in the probable runway of the birds, and then drives them toward it in the same manner, as he does the deer, as the fowl runs full speed into the loose net, it folds about him, and he is easily taken, the most common method of securing wild roosters is by means of a series of slip nooses attached to a main cord or band figure 11, this is set up so as to enclose a square or triangular space, and a tame rooster is put inside, the crowing of this bird attracts the attention of the wild fowl who comes in to fight. Soon, in the excitement of the combat, one is caught in a noose, and the harder it pulls, the more securely it is held. At times the trap is baited with worms or grain. The snare is carried in a basket-like case, which is often fitted with a compartment for the decoy rooster. Another type of chicken snare consists of a single noose, which rests onto elevated strips of bamboo. The other end of the cord is attached to a bent limb held down by means of a small trigger, which slips under a cross strip. The game is led onto the trap by scattering grain. The weight of the bird releases the trigger. The bent twig flies up, and the noose is drawn tightly. Small birds are captured in considerable numbers by the boys who, for this purpose, make use of three types of snares. The first and most common is a simple slip noose made of human or horse hair attached to a stick. Several of these are driven into the ground close together and grain is scattered between them. A second type of noose trap is shown in figure 12. Number 1. A bamboo pole with sharpened end has a spring of the same material attached to its side. A cord from this passes through a small hole in the top of, and then forms a slip noose. A small stick or trigger is forced into the hole until firm enough to keep the line held taut, and the noose is spread on it. Bait is placed on the point of in such a manner that the bird has to alight on to secure it. Its weight releases the trigger, and the noose is drawn tightly around its legs. Another trap of this nature is illustrated by figure 12. Number 2. Here a branch is bent down and a line is attached. The trigger stick slips outside, and the pressure holds the free stick in place against the crotch. Bait is so placed on that a bird coming to secure it must stand inside the slip noose which is spread on. The weight and movement of the victim releases the trigger, draws the line taut and closes the noose about its legs. In the lowland villages, Blogan's Salbalena are used to a limited extent in hunting birds. Two long strips of palm wood are grooved and fitted together. Over these the intestines of a carabao are drawn, and the whole is wrapped tightly with cord and covered with beeswax. The guns vary from 12 to 16 feet in length, 
and are often excellently made, yet they are little better than toys, for the missiles used are only clay balls, toys and darts are unknown in this region, and the weapon is confined to the villages near to the coast, this, together with the fact that the blowgun does not appear in the lore or ceremonies, suggests that it of recent introduction plague XLVII, locusts are considered excellent food, and when they are flying in great numbers, are taken by means of small nets, these are attached to poles, and are swung into the swarm, sometimes nearly the whole village will unite in such a hunt, the catch being stored in large bottle-shaped baskets until needed, bats and rats are not eaten, but the latter are trapped and killed because of the grain they destroy and the injury they do to the houses and their contents, the most common trap is made from a section of bamboo in one side of which a spring is inserted, a line attached to this leads to a slip noose which fits inside the tube, bait is attached to a trigger which, when disturbed, releases the spring and closes the loop around the intruder, fishing, mention has already been made of the capture of fish by the children, older people likewise devote some time to fishing, but not to the extent of making it an occupation, nearly every family has a collection of traps and lines, and at times quite a number of fish and eels are secured, the common trap is shown in figure 13, number 1, the entrance is made of sharp bamboo splints, which converge toward a small hole opening into the trap proper, the device is then placed in the water in such a way that fish coming downstream will be diverted into the opening, the current and the natural inclination of the fish to go into a dark hiding place causes them to force their way into the trap, and once in they cannot emerge, the water escapes through the bamboo slits, but the fish can only be released by opening the small end of the trap, many of the women carry baskets attached to the belt at the hip, the tops of these baskets have funnel shaped openings, and are immediately available for use as traps, if a good catch is in prospect figure 13, number 2, these are usually employed for shrimps and minnows, eels are caught in long, round traps of rattan and bamboo, a frog is fastened in the far end of the tube, usually with a fish hook, this is attached to a rattan spring, which is connected with the door of the trap, the eel enters and seizes the frog, but as it starts to back out, it releases the bent rattan, and the door is pulled shut, small hand nets, spread apart by means of sticks held in the hands, are used by women in scooping up small fish, ordinarily, it is scooped away from the body, but if the fish takes refuge under a rock, the net is placed under the opposite side, and the stone is turned over with the foot. The most effective fishing device is a large thrown net made cornucopia shape. The large net is open and weighted with many sinkers of lead. The man throws the net with a full arm sweeping motion, so that it spreads to its full extent, and all the sinkers strike the water at the same time. The splash causes all the fish inside the circle to dart inward, and as it sinks, the net settles over them. The fisherman draws in the cord attached to the small end, causing the sinkers to drag along to the bottom until directly beneath him, when their weight closes the net, it requires much skill and practice to throw this net properly, but once the art is mastered, the fisherman is very successful, blanket fishing similar to that in use by the neighboring Igru is found here, a large blanket is weighed down with stones, and is placed in the river, after one or two hours have elapsed, a number of men form a wide circle around it, Often they drag between them a rope to which many corn husks are attached. As they advance toward the blanket, they turn the larger stones with their feet so that any fish hiding beneath them will be frightened away. The circle of men and corn husks causes the fish to go toward the blanket, 
and finally to take refuge under the stones piled upon it. When the blanket is reached, the men seize the corners and lift it out of the water onto the bank, where the stones are thrown out and the fish secured. A somewhat similar idea is found in the llama. Quantities of leaf branches are sunk into a still pool, and are left for a few days until the fish have come to use them as a hiding place. A number of men make a close fence of bamboo sticks about them, then go inside, throw out the branches, and catch the fish with their hands or with the nets. Streams are often diverted from their course, for a time, and then returned, leaving the fish in the artificial channel stranded. A curious method of fishing was seen in the Itman River. A hook was fastened in the end of a bamboo pole, and close to the same end was attached to a short line, to act as a lure. When the other fish approached the captive, the pole was jerked sharply, in an attempt to snag them. On one occasion the writer saw 50 fish taken by this method in less than an hour. Short lines attached to sticks are often baited, and are set along the embankments of the flooded rice fields. Small fish spears with detachable heads are also used in the rice lands, as well as in the clear pools. The only occasion when the bow and arrow is used in this region is when the rice fields are flooded. At such times a short bow and an arrow with fork-shaped head are employed. Figure 13. NOS. 33A. A fish poison or stupefier is occasionally used. A small red berry known as biotin is crushed, and the powder is thrown into or just above quiet pools, where fish abound. Some of the fish become stupefied and float on the surface, where they are quickly speared or scooped up. They are eaten without any ill effects. Chapter VIII Economic Life Rice Culture The most important crop raised by the Tingian is rice, and to its cultivation he devotes a considerable portion of his time. Two distinct methods of growing are now found throughout the district the mountain or upland fields, in which the rice is raised without irrigation, and the rice terraces with irrigation play XLVII. To prepare the first type of field, a piece of forest land is chosen if possible, or lacking this, a plot covered with second growth is selected. The purpose in using timber land is to escape the cogone grass in Paradiconigii, which quickly invades all open fields and flourishes until the trees again shut out the sunlight. The trees and underbrush are cut down during the dry season, so that they may be ready for burning before the arrival of the first rains. Should no timber land be available, an open piece will be selected, and after the grass is burned, the soil will be partially cleared of its stubborn roots by means of a large knife or adze-like instrument known as Pelec figure 14. Number 2. After the clearing. The field is fenced in so as to protect it from deer, wild pigs, and carabao. The rudest type of protection consists of a barricade of brush, strengthened with forked sticks, in the crotches of which poles are laid. The more common method is to set bamboo tubes, at intervals, around the whole plot and to lash to them other tubes which have been split in half. A still better fence is made by cutting three holes, about a foot apart, through each upright and to insert smaller bamboo through these. When the rains begin, the men go to the fields, each with two hardwood sticks whittled to tapering rounded ends. These are driven alternately into the soil making shallow holes an inch or so in depth, into each of which the women drop several seed rice. The whole field is gone over in this way, soil is pushed into the holes with the feet, and frequently the task is finished by sowing a few handfuls of seed broadcast and distributing it by brushing back and forth with a leafy branch. In the valley districts the planting sticks are cut as needed, but in the mountains, where the upland rice is more important, strong bamboo poles fitted with hardwood points are in general use. These implements, 
known as Tepong figure 15, number 1, are invariably carefully decorated with incised designs, and are preserved from year to year. Commonly, the divisions between the sections of the bamboo are knocked out and the tube used as a receptacle for the seed rice. As the mountain fields need special protection, it is customary to build near them little elevated houses in which the workers may rest, and in which the watchers can live during the time the grain must be guarded. If the plots are near to a village, such a house seldom consists of more than a rude framework of poles, which support a grass roof, and to which a bamboo floor is lashed, two or three feet above the ground, but if the fields are at a distance, these structures are provided with sides, and are raised high on strong logs, such high, well-built houses are necessary, both to protect the occupants from surprise attacks of enemies, and to afford shelter against driving winds or rains. It is not an uncommon occurrence for a whole family to go to one of these isolated mountain dwellings and reside for a considerable period, particularly when the rice is approaching maturity. These upland fields produce much smaller crops than do the wetlands, and as they are quickly exhausted, it is not customary to plant them to rice for more than two seasons. At the end of this time, they may be used for commotes convolvulus batatas, sugar cane, or cotton but in the majority of cases they are allowed to lie unused for several seasons. When the grass or undergrowth is again removed and the fields replanted, the wet fields produce by far the greater part of the rice, and it is about them that most of the agricultural laborers center. In the broad valleys, low embankments, of sufficient height to maintain the water at a depth of two or three inches, separate the fields, the lower plots are often of considerable length and width, some covering as much as an acre of ground. But as they begin to ascend the slopes, the walls rise higher, and the fields become narrower until they may be only a few feet in width. In the rugged mountain districts, the terraces often begin just above the flood water of the stream. At this point, a stone wall, four or five feet in height, is erected, and back of this the mountain side is cut away and filled in until it forms a step or terrace. Back of this another wall is raised and the process is repeated until at last the terraces extend for two or three hundred feet up the mountainside plate xlix. When the field is first made, topsoil, enriched with vegetable growth, is laid on the surface, often to a depth of several inches, but from this time on no fertilizer, other than the decaying straw of the previous crop, is added. Although the field is used continuously for many years, water is conducted to many of the fields by means of ditches, usually by diverting the flow of some of the numerous springs or streams but in a few instances, stone dams have been thrown across the rivers and the water carried for considerable distances by flumes and ditches, the highest terraces are first inundated to the desired depth, and then openings are made in the side walls so as to allow the lower fields to be flooded, this method of irrigation provides for the maximum use of the water, and also supplies a constant current which prevents the formation of stagnant pools. Some of the fields are situated too far up the mountainside to be reached by ditches, and in such cases the growth of the rice is entirely dependent on the rainfall, however, in normal years, the precipitation is sufficient to mature the crop. At the beginning of the rainy season, some of the seed rice is sprouted in specially prepared beds in the villages, in such cases a small plot is surrounded with low dirt walls, the soil is enriched with manure, water is added and the hole is worked until it becomes a thin mud, on which the rice is thickly sown. Around this bed, a bamboo frame is erected to keep out pigs and chickens, while from time to time water is poured on the growing shoots. The more common method of sprouting, 
however, is to select a piece of land, which will receive the full benefit of the rainfall and to break this with a plow drawn by a carabao. When the seed beds have been planted, the people go to the fields, repair the embankments, and admit the water. The straw remaining from the previous crop is allowed to rot, for a time, and then the ground is gone over with a bamboo harrow polyide, as shown in figure 15, number 3, to remove weeds, branches, and the like, wherever it is possible, the soil is broken with a plow, paladu play el but in fields to which animals cannot be taken, the ground is turned by means of sharpened sticks, or poles dipped with iron, which are driven into the soil and forced forward thus pushing the earth above them into the water, as will be seen from the accompanying drawing figure 15, NOS, 2-2A. The plow is constructed entirely of wood except for the iron chair, and conforms closely to that used in Java, Celebes, Sumatra, Burma, and Anam. Within a few days after the plowing, the soil is further broken by dragging it with a harrow, made by driving wooden pegs into a heavy board, or into a large bamboo tubes figure 15. Number 4. A worker stands on this, and is dragged about the field, leveling it, and at the same time pulling out sticks, roots, and any other matter of sufficient bulk to interfere with the planting. Two types of sleds figure 15, NOS, 5-6 are used in connection with the rice culture, as well as in general transportation. The first consists of rude wooden runners on which a bamboo flooring is laid. The second has narrow runners, which are hewn with considerable care while sides of flattened bamboo convert the sled into an open box. The first type passagat is used principally during the wet season for the transportation of plows, harrows, and the like. The wide runner slipping through the mud without becoming mired. The use of the latter colosun is restricted to the dry season, when it is of particular advantage in moving the rice. Wheeled vehicles are not employed in any part of the Tengian belt, although their use is now fairly common among the Ilocano. It requires a month or six weeks to make ready the fields, and in the meantime the rice in the seed beds has grown to a height of 12 or 14 inches. The shoots are then pulled up by the roots, are tied into bundles, and the tops are cut off plately. The bundles are distributed about the fields at convenient distances, and the workers then transplant the young rice three or four together in the soft ooze, using the thumb and forefinger of the right hand for that purpose plately. The preparation of the field is looked after by the men and boys, and oftentimes they aid in transplanting, but the latter is considered to be women's work, and is generally left to them. The rice is set so thickly that when, 